0: This is the Sustainable Goat Podcast. We look to nature for how we should interrelate to the world. All the answers are within nature. If we take the time to listen.
1: But what we have to find is a reasonable way how to handle plastic. You know, consumers expect more. They're expecting brands to be more sustainable. They're choosing sustainable brands.
0: These are the stories and ideas from those that will define a generation. I'm your host. Steve Castanem, And this is Our Planet in Focus. Let's dive in then. So where exactly in New Zealand are you?
1: Auckland, New Zealand.
0: How'd you kind of end up in New Zealand? Did you grow up in New Zealand? Yeah,
1: so I'm a born and bred Kiwi. Grew up in Wellington. Went to school in Wellington. And then when I decided that I was going to back on an architecture sort of career, I ended up going to university in Auckland. So I moved to Auckland. And then I got a degree in architecture and worked in New Zealand for a couple of years and then fell in love and got married and went overseas for 20 years. And tick, 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 two years ago, we came back because of COVID and now trying to set up a lifestyle in New Zealand again.
0: Wow. What's it kind of like growing up in New Zealand? Because I know New Zealand's actually a super progressive culture when you look at how they look at economics and climate and stuff like that. I mean, what was it like kind of growing up in that type of mindset?
1: It was a lovely childhood growing up came from a pretty stable family. Both parents worked, had two older brothers. It was just a really interesting place to grow up. It was more for me, it was more about uh, the lifestyle that enabled us to be able to go out the back door and go up into the farmland in Wellington where we grew up and go for adventures for as far as we could, for as long as we could before we returned. We sort of had some some sort of homing beacon, myself and my brothers, that we arrived miraculously at dinner time or at lunch time and then as soon as the meal was finished we are off again adventuring around and looking for things to do and that was crossing streams or going snorkeling and the geography of of the way wellington's laid out you it's a harbor city so you could either be in the harbor swimming in the ocean or snorkeling or you could be on one of the coasts the south coast of wellington which sort of looks out across the south island further south from wellington and so we had lots of adventures like that it was great it was Great place to grow up, can't complain about it. And then returning, it was something that I nostalgically that I always wanted my daughter to be able to experience growing up with bare feet and going to school and you know, with bare feet and that's exactly what she did.
0: Oh, that's amazing. And so I take it you're hitting the same spots from time to time if you guys hit Wellington.
1: I'd like to. She's twelve now, but the few times we've been down to Wellington it's been sort of a two or three day junket to go down to visit someone for a birthday so we haven't really been able to do a lot of the things that i did as a kid haven't even been able to take it to see the the old family homestead where we grew up but it's on the bucket (laughs) list of things to do along with also you know seeing lots of other more amazing things in the world other than where dad grew up
0: yeah yeah 100 percent. and so when you got into architecture what was it about architecture that you found interesting
1: yeah that's a really interesting question. I suppose initially I got into architecture through what we call the drafting avenue, you know, learning to draft and learning to construct a series of documents, be it plans, sections and elevations and putting together a drawing set. So I went to school to learn to do that. And and I think it's it's the craft that I came to sort of understand through working for various practices along my academic career. It's it's the craft and the relationship you form The new relationship you form with a client every time, it's like repeating, but it's repeating the cycle with different people, with different views, and pushing different ideas around. So it was more the the opening of my eyes to the way that you could see and engage with people and push ideas, and particularly if you had very progressive clients, push ideas to the nth degree, if you could, within reason and within budget, to try and come up with different solutions to the way that we live. You know, we're all the same, Steve, at the end of the day, but it's how <laughs> willing people are to have their eyes opened up to different interpretations of the way that Homo sapiens live,
0: right? Mm. And how has kind of the living situation been, I mean, through human existence? I mean, architecture has always played a major role in, in culture. It's oftentimes the centerpiece of a city. How has that story changed over the years in terms of what we call home? in architecture, if you will.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. The way I suppose it's changed for me is, is opening my eyes to the way that different cultures live together and different people live together in terms of just experiencing, I suppose, living in cities with larger populations. New Zealand's blessed in the fact that we're very horizontal in the way that we live. We all have our own little standalone houses, our own little sections. We all grew up with the notion of what's called a quarter acre section. So you had you know, a house firmly rooted, perhaps in the center of the section, and you had a side yard and a rear yard and a front yard. And the houses were all laid out facing the street. And the predominant thing was the letterbox and the front door. And none of that orientation really had anything to do with the way that the earth moved around the sun. And then when we moved overseas, and we learn about living on top of each other and, and vertical living, you know. And I think I expressed to you previously that my daughter, who's twelve, never, never grew up in a building that didn't have an elevator. And so, learning to live amongst the strata of different people and having people living above you or below you is really, really kind of interesting. And so then, as we've moved along, sort of continuum of life, and come back to New Zealand, New Zealand is starting to embark, or I suppose, relatively recently perhaps in the last 20 years maybe 30 years in the notion of apartment living and our biggest city Auckland which is about 1.5 to 1.7 billion people has sort of had this influx of a lot of people building apartment buildings perhaps developer-led not so much design-led and it's been very interesting watching those develop and come up and I suppose the you know you learn from a lot from living in the UK and you realize all of these massive buildings they built in the 60s and then that now and even in America right they built buildings in the 60s big apartment blocks that they ended up destroying and pulling down because they realized that they created all sorts of social problems and i think The issue Mm. with New Zealand in in its infancy is that, you know, we've got to realize that it's not just stacking buildings on top of each other or apartments on top of each other. It's also you've got to provide a public amenity and a private amenity to try and keep these places alive during the day, which is, and night, Mm. which is something, you know, like living in Mexico City with, you know, plus 30 million or living in New York or living in London, is that a lot of these places are, are alive and full of vibrancy 24 hours a day. And unfortunately Mm. for New Zealand, little old New Zealand, we don't have the population to sort of stimulate the kind of growth that we all want, that we've all experienced from overseas to give you that really good, rich design essence. Yeah. Mm. So we're a chicken and an egg back here.
0: That's such an interesting way to look at it because... So living is going towards that mixed retail, you have taller buildings, vertical living you discussed and kind of you have this community level at the bottom. But I also think it is part about building a community where people can engage in all the different things that they enjoy to do. So what does a community actually need? Do you feel that that role is more on kind of the community to kind of dictate that or more so on the architect's vision of what they can build? Where's that line where the architect kind of has control over what a building or a city block kind of does?
1: Yeah, I think it's tied hand in hand. You've got the architects who really want the vision, but you've also got the urban planners and you've got to mesh together with everybody, including the community and what they want. And it's our role as architects is to try and open people's eyes, perhaps even from a community level, to try and open people's eyes to the reality of if you start breaking down some of the barriers, if you start Removing the fences between properties, you actually make places feel a lot more open and visible and a lot more friendly and a lot more caring and a lot more communication across neighborhoods. So, for a community based project, it's about going out and talking to the community. I don't think that an architect can come up with a solution in their own mind without going out to the masses, the people that are involved, the people that are there on the ground. And that's one of the biggest things as an architect or an architecture practice or the architecture community needs to do, and they do do, is go out there and get data from people, the people that really use these places. Like I said before, as we've learned from history, if you don't engage with the masses of the people for the community-style projects, you end up building something that they don't actually use or they don't want. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's more, I suppose, with... Maybe the invention of technology is the ability to reach more people and draw from them, whether it's a social housing and you end up having a lot of community meetings to understand from the people what they want from their social affordable housing. Do they want a common laundry area? Do they want a common rec room? Do they want a swimming pool? Do they want X, Y, and Z? Or do they want to be able to walk short distances to be able to get to a lot of these community-based things whether or not it's a library or a bus stop or a train station so when I went through architecture school you thought of perhaps the guru let's call it uh, Frank Lloyd Wright who might come up with an amazing scheme but I think there's an underlying requirement from us in the architecture or the planning industry is to go out and make sure that we've canvassed everybody and might not be the people that are speaking the loudest it might be the quietest people in the room that you need to sort of say look excuse me after the meeting perhaps hey i noticed that there's a group of people in the corner that didn't speak up they might have the the most amazing insights into how they want to live
0: Mm. and how do you think that architecture process has impacted you i mean when some of the projects that you've worked on i mean walk me through some of those things i think that maybe architects see, but normal people don't. When they go by and look at a building, what are some of the thoughts that kind of go into some of these projects that you work on? Because there's a lot that people don't see where there's a lot of mindful thought that goes into the materials that are used, the amount of water, how long it's going to last, if it has to move.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. In life, you've got a qualification, it could be a degree in something. And and why do some people work so much harder in don't get paid as much as other people that work just as hard to get paid a lot more. What i found as an architect, you're constantly trying to solve all the riddles of putting a building together. And quite often how that's highlighted to me is when people try and cut corners. So they might get an architect to do a design for a house but they won't get the architect to follow through with the construction administration, for instance. And then the documentation isn't developed enough to answer all the questions that will come back from the builder. And quite often I'll come across you know a series of people that will be like, wow, I didn't realize there were so many decisions, and, and I actually feel like I'm slowing the builder down because the builder wants to know X, Y, and Z, and then I have to go away and research it. Whereas, I suppose, in the architecture profession, because of the process, you're constantly thinking, what's the next thing I need to answer? It's a process, right? You go through the process, you start with a plan, a section, an elevation, or a model, or whatever. But you know, as you're moving through the continuum of developing or building a building, that all these series of questions are going to come through to you. So I suppose the thing that I've learned the most is that it is a process, and you can't shortcut it and you get what you pay for, and the beautiful, Mm -hmm. the most amazingly crafted buildings that you see in the world, the architect has held on firmly to the process and been true to the process all the way through, and I suppose has not let the client undermine it or the builder undermine it by providing cheaper solutions, perhaps, or alternates. I know as an architect, you're always looking at alternates because, you know, why wouldn't you? but it's holding true to the the vision, I suppose, is one of the things I've seen Mm -hmm. and experienced, especially um, working for some quite high-power firms, is that they have the vision, and the client has signed off on the vision all the way through the process, and along the continuum of trying to develop and build the building, many people will come to the fore and have their opinions, but their opinions might water down the vision, and it's holding true to the Mm -hmm. vision, making sure the client gets what they pay for
0: Yeah. Architecture is starting to change quite a bit, I think, in that it's more how can we design systems that either mimic nature, that use nature in a better way, that either cut down on water. What are some of the movements that are kind of going on in architecture and how are you kind of seeing that work with clients?
1: Well, I suppose it's a bit of a 2 double-edged sword there, isn't it? If you take a commercial building, you it's all about trying to maximize the amount of light that you get into a building natural light while reducing the amount of physical heat gain that comes onto a building so you're not relying on mechanical systems to reduce the heat but it's trying to create beautiful environments that people feel comfortable to be in and like you say it mimics nature or invites nature in so mostly it's about in my opinion it's about light and the absence of reliance on mechanical for instance and i was in an emergency department the other day and I was talking to the doctor in there, and I noticed that the doctor took me into her office, but her office had no windows at all. And I said, well, how does this work? You know, how does this make you feel? You're here for eight hours a day, if not longer. And mm-hmm. her, her response was exactly that. She said, yeah, I would love to be in a in a space that had an outlook, that had natural light, mm-hmm. had natural ventilation. But unfortunately, I don't, and we'll put it down to poor building design or or a poor brief, or just perhaps the reuse of an existing space, and that's what they ended up with. But from my little bit of experience of working in healthcare, people need natural light, people need natural wind, they need to be able to see the sun, they need to be able to see the clouds, they need vegetation, because that all helps in the healing process. And the same with you know with living or working in a commercial environment. You need, you need nature around you and amongst you. Otherwise, it's just not good for the human soul.
0: Wow. so how would you design a space obviously there's a lot of variables in there but when it comes to natural light and airflow i think you kind of touched on something that i've been really interested in which is passive heating and passive architecture so how would you not use mechanical things to pretty much light and create airflow in a space
1: that's looking at the site right You've got to do all of your site analysis in terms of climate, orientation, predominant wind direction. If you're lucky enough and you have a site that's open to let's say all the sides and all the elements, then you can set it up to capture the breeze or to capture the morning light, and you can shut it down on another side to to eliminate the high strength of the sun, for instance, and You can channel the way the wind moves through the building by being able to open one side of the building in one way and that doesn't need to be mechanically opened it can just be manually open one side of the building and then you can open the other side so you get cross flow ventilation or simple things like convection right you want the the air to come in down low and leave up high to drag the cool air through the building if you're trying to cool the building down so the cool air gets dragged in down low and the hot air gets pumped out or sucked out out the top, just simply by creating a positive and negative pressure zones from one side of the building to the other. Similar with sun, right? It's like wearing a sun hat. You pull your sun hat down low when you're, you're looking west, in my case, so the sun's coming in. You don't want the sun to come in late in the evening and, and heat you up or burn you. You also look at materials that might be able to store energy to re-release them later on, in the evening when it cools down. The simple adage of you know feeling a concrete wall that's been sitting in the sun all day, and once the sun's gone down, that's re-radiating out energy. It might not be concrete, it might be water, depending on how much energy you want to be able to reticulate through the building. You could be using water with mass, so the water heats up and then travels via a convection through the, the base of the building and then re-radiates out up through the building. One of the biggest things about all of that is the instant ability to be able to get rid of heat is another tricky thing, isn't it? Too much heat could be a bad thing, but providing you're able to open up and allow, you know, the passive ventilation process to take place, then you can get to a comfortable position. And then you can balance that and temper it by having mechanical systems. Maybe they're just mechanical motors that are driven by photovoltaic cells that set to a sensor or a thermostat that can control it, so we're now... Starting to bring technology in, but we're not reliant on technology. You know, there's something about the the human nature. There's something pleasurable. There's something about feeling like you are connected to nature. And I think it's the action also of being able to open the window. It's different to be able to open a window or a door to feel the cool breeze come in, than putting on a fan that just pushes the air around. You feel more connected mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And the passive design in terms of airflow and everything, it's been known for a long time. Do you feel like it was kind of forgotten for a bit or just that technology is enabling advancements in that process? Because some buildings, I think they're meant to just put some air conditioning on the roof and that's it. And it's almost like designed to just block them with air conditioning. That's pretty much it. So how do you kind of see that process have been?
1: That process feels like an afterthought, doesn't it? Whereas, you know, you've, mm. you've created a box and now you're finding it's heating up. So you plug something onto the outside of the box to change the internal environment of the box. I think early on you have to identify on a project how much time and, and money and R&D you want to invest them in, into a passive design. Mm. And then there's you can go to all the extremes where you can take on the passive ideas or you can also, you know, try to become qualified in a passive design sense and so there's some sort of happy medium it's either down the bottom or out the top or somewhere happy medium in between those two areas but I think quite often when I'm talking with teams or I'm working with teams you know we'll bring in a sustainability expert and we'll start thinking about lead and how many points or what sort of system we want to try and adhere to whether or not it's platinum gold or and it's just a matter of how by going through the process how can you accommodate these requirements without looking at the lifestyle costing of the building without spending too much money up front because the client might not have the money or where the client wants to end up in terms of their building so it's a lot of it's client driven because you can throw as many of these ideas into the design of a building you can keep throwing stuff at it but it's just a matter of trying to find out whether or not it fits within the budget, whether or not it fits within the client's requirements, and also perhaps educating the client on the way.
0: Mm -hmm. Because I was also wondering about that. Is that decision to go lead silver versus lead platinum, for example, is that decision purely just financial or is it, hey, we want to commit to this, but we just like physically can't financially, but let's find another way. Does it just fall on the client to make that kind of push? Or do you feel like it's more on the industry to kind of provide an an easier solution where it doesn't initially like kind of gut a budget in order to be more thoughtful in the design process?
1: You should be striving to try and be as sustainable as you can. So every decision should be Mm -hmm. striving for the top. Whether or not you reach the top is another thing. But you can always, in some cases, you can actually upgrade a building from one level to another by perhaps finding a more efficient mechanical solution down the line you might pay a bit of money to do that but i think it's kind of like a little bit of your due diligence right you have to be pushing to be as sustainable as you can and potentially as passive as you can because ultimately you're saving you're saving a lot of things right you're saving on material costs because they're not coming from outside a certain distance you're saving on mechanical costs because you're not relying on mechanical as much because you've got natural ventilation as part of the system so i think it's it's a little i don't even know if it's an unwritten code but it's it's a little bit like you as an architect you just need to be pushing sustainability towards the client the whole time and the flip side is that the client can put their hand up and say as a business we're striving to be more sustainable or we're striving to be carbon neutral and therefore we are taking these steps and being seen to be in the top echelon of Companies in the world that are, you know, maybe it's the top 25%. We're aiming to be up here as being one of the better manufacturers or providers or designers or developers in the world because we are constantly striving to do things better, more efficiently, cheaper. Maybe the building lasts longer because of certain decisions we've made. It's less maintenance, less life cycle costing, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and I actually had a question about that too when it comes to actual building life cycle. Where's that line of keeping a building alive versus tearing down and rebuilding? Because it is a lot of material to do either and I know it's case by case basis, but is it still about building buildings that are meant to last, you know, five hundred years or is it building buildings that are lasting a hundred because we could rebuild something more ecological by then?
1: Yeah, that's that's another really interesting question. I think the reality is you wanna be able to build a building that is flexible, not in terms of its structure, but flexible in terms of its ability to change and morph and provide differing solutions as, as requirements change. And so it would be looking at a very simple structural solution that allowed you to have big open spaces that could be closed down and divided up and reused. I think you'd probably be well, and you're you're dreaming if you want a building to be last five hundred years. You know, I think it's fifty, yeah. <laughs> it's 50 years, maybe 100, a hundred. But as an architect, I think you'd probably once you've died and become famous, you'd probably be sitting up post death, going, "Yay, someone kept my building alive by reinventing it as something else." And there's a lot of there's a lot of design expertise and a lot of satisfaction when taking and taking an old building and you know, or an outdated building and being able to flip it into something that's modern and reusable, but also has you've done it in an economically viable way. I think it's a shame to have to rip out a lot of things and destroy them. That's not the way yeah. we should be going because we've got limited resources. We should be looking to make our buildings fit for purpose, but have the ability to be flexible in terms of, you know, you've, your structural system is set up to allow you to change the module in certain ways so people can reuse it or see ways to reuse it without destroying it.
0: Yeah, and how, how much to the future do you really need to go as an architect of either how society is going to be, how people are going to interact? Do you have to think about that when you're designing a project or does it depend on the size of the project or the scope? Like an office building versus like an airport or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think you're constantly looking to the future. You're constantly trying to guess how society is going to be and i think the issue and for me in particular is how do you make society more accepting of all people rather than excluding people think of all the people that walk down the street and don't actually go into buildings it's one of the, one of the favorite things i used to do when i would walk around big cities is there's a lot of big buildings they have a public lobby but people don't feel like they want to be able to open the door and go in there and experience it. But I always used to love just opening the front door of buildings, whether or not it was automatic or it was a, one of those automatic doors. And you just walked in and just sort of see how far you can get into a building before somebody did something to you or said, Excuse me, what are you doing? <laughs> because a lot of them are beautiful spaces to be in, you know, double height lobbies oh, yeah. and waterfalls and really nice places just to hang out, to take a call or sit there on your laptop or something.
0: I remember like one of the first really, I mean, just office towers that I ever saw in a, in a city, this massive marble wall in a huge lobby, just absolutely stunning. I'd never seen anything like it. And it's just by walking into the building. And I one day I did just, I walked in and somebody was like, sir, can, it, can I get, do you need anything? And I was like, no, thank you. I'm fine. And I just literally like turned around and walked out. But I just remember...
1: Yeah, one of my favourite experiences, and it was virtually daily, when we used to work out of the Hearst building on West 58th Street in New York, it had this beautiful foyer, which wasn't really known to the public, but it had a triple-height space, if not an 80-foot high space, with a beautiful piece of art in the form of what's called an icefall, so it was a waterfall of water falling over some glass bricks, and then it had a beautiful Richard Long mural made out of mud, I think it was from the... East River and the Hudson River that was smeared in a beautiful pattern, but you'd come down these escalators, so you're in the private side, and when you went through the security gate, there was a little lobby, and the amount of times you'd come down those escalators and you'd be seeing people, and you could tell that they were tourists coming in just to have a look, and often the security guards ended up being a little bit like, you know, giving free guided discussions about the design of the lobby, and they were qualified by the fact that they knew a lot about the space because they'd been there, and perhaps they'd even talk to the chief designers of the team about it we were there when it was being constructed mm. but it was it was beautiful, it was beautiful watching, one, the people who were coming in off the street and they might have, oh, I was an architect from Europe or I was an architecture student from China or something coming in to have a look at the space and then being able to be engaged by someone who wasn't the designer but knew enough about the space to be able to talk to them, it was beautiful and that's probably what stimulated me to go, well hold on a minute there are amazing lobbies all around the world let's go and find them, and walk into them and experience them
0: How important is that to kind of educate people on architecture, the the thought process that goes into that? I think whenever people go into spaces, I mean, this happened when I was a bit younger, you go into a space and you'd be inspired by it. There would be something about it and you couldn't necessarily put a finger on it, but something about it was inspiring. And to me, that's good design. How important is that to educate that to people who aren't familiar with it?
1: Hmm, that's... I'm not sure you're not conscious of designing a building and then saying, I want people when they're standing here to feel like they're, I don't know, experiencing X, Y, and Z. So therefore, you know, you feel like, oh, I've got to put someone on the corner of the building so when someone comes in, I'm going to tell them this is what you've got to see. But I like what you are saying, that everybody experiences something about the creation of space. And when I'm talking Mm -hmm. about space, it could be, the physical space created on the outside because you have put a building right in the middle of a field or it could be the internal space that you created within the building right And so that's the joy about creating buildings or creating architecture is you're creating a series of spaces that people experience and you're absolutely right sometimes you can move through space and go, wow that was amazing it was absolutely uplifting i felt so connected with one the space and two the people moving through it and three the environment and four the sun the way it moved across the sky and the wind and everything and you just can't put your finger on why it is and i think it's got a lot to do in my case with scale think about how you compress yourself when you go into a space and then it opens up and you feel that sort of sense of awe you get it when you go into into a church you go in through a tiny little front door and it opens up to the heavens it's something about us as animals that we that we like that we we feel uplifted or we our senses our, our emotions are affected by the environment around us and when there's an environment that's perhaps designed and created in harmony bringing together a lot of these elements in a very harmonious way we can't put our finger on it why it feels so nice but maybe that's it. It's proportions, it's scale, it's connection to the outdoor or the indoors. There's a whole series of things you can layer up on themselves. It's simplicity. It's ease of being able to read how you move through a space. We've all been there in times where you've rushed into a, into a situation. You don't know. It's not immediately obviously which direction you're supposed to be going. And if mm. you've got spaces that are very clearly defined... And very logical in the sequence with which you move through them and relaxing and you're not feeling like you're in a hurry. That's, that's why you enjoy them.
0: Mm, that's so interesting, the subconscious side of how people experience buildings. That's a psychology conversation. I love that. It is interesting. I mean, there's an episode on the, a couple episodes ago on the podcast where it was a discussion of actually just the human subconscious relaxes with nature even just in the room. It just relaxes. And so it's always fascinating to explore from all different sides how people interact with spaces, whether that be the things that are in the room, the structure that is making the room, and then what's outside the room.
1: Yeah, and simple things like someone who comes into an office building one day and brings in a plant and puts it on their desk. It changes the mood. Is the plant happy? Is the plant sticking up and being positive and growing in a nice way or is it sad? And that's how we are. We're very similar. Do we get enough sunlight? Do we get enough water? Do we get enough food?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's super true. So when you start to like think about the future of architecture and the future of sustainability and, and where kind of the market's going in terms of either building or people interacting with space, where do you see the changes happening?
1: Hmm. It's kind of interesting because technology plays a huge part in the fact that we're so much more connected globally, right? And so whether or not we, and I think I touched on this previously when we last spoke, whether or not we need these gigantic spaces to bring together thousand people on one floor plate or 500 people on one floor plate, you know, do we need these massive spaces to bring all these people together, to have them, are they communicating? Are they working in the right way? And I think what technology has done is it's given us the ability to be able to communicate around the world while staying put and not necessarily leaving where we are. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because I still think the conversation you and I are having via technology is amazing, but it might be even more amazing if we were actually together. Mm -hmm. And it's the touchy-feely, right? We as humans, we like to be able to, shake hands or touch people to try and reaffirm what we're speaking about. So I think in one way I see with the advance of technology and just the way that man can sometimes be at loggerheads with each other in terms of disagreeing about things, I think in some ways you could see the world going to a situation where people build buildings to keep people out. Whereas I think we almost want to be breaking them down to let people in. And it's, again, a chicken and an egg thing, you know, how secure do you need to be? The experience, for instance, of going to an embassy to pick up a visa to travel to another country, I always find that incredibly emotionally draining is probably the wrong word, but I find it incredibly draining and I'm always hyper aware. It's similar to going through security at an airport, right? And I think we touched on this previously. How do you remove all of those feelings that people feel I feel guilty when I walk through an airport I'm not (laughs) um, but how do we remove all those feelings so that people can therefore enjoy their lives and enjoy the space and enjoy the interaction and know that they're secure so I would like to see I think you know that buildings open up more to people and there's there's the ability for people to move through them and interact with them more and the whole thing about You talk about the internet, you know, and people being able to go into buildings. And when I was living in America, each sort of like AT&T or Verizon, it would be a Verizon building or an AT&T building. So I mean that your telephone worked really well if you're on AT&T in a multi-story building, or it might not have worked that well if you're only on Verizon. But you need to be able to break all that down. And then when we traveled overseas and we went to somewhere in Cuba and there was a park that was just full of people. And we were like, why is it full of people? They're all locals are here. What are they doing? It was free internet. You know, so you need to be able to, in some regards, break down all of these barriers to do with technology to allow people to be able to interact more. You know, free internet for everybody. A, I'm going off the topic, but it's kind of, it breaks down the barrier, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah,
0: and I was wondering about that. How has is, how is kind of design changed with, with technology? I mean, now it's almost standard that somebody wants to have a fast internet or they want to be able to be connected basically at all times how do you design around technological preferences changing too because spaces change, like people being being in person sitting in a coffee shop it's popular now that coffee shops don't have outlets for people to plug in laptops or they don't have wi-fi so they force people to talk to each other how do you design as technology advances
1: well what we typically did is we always got the experts in right so mm-hmm. an example was a twenty story building, high-rise accommodation, what do you call them? Condominiums that we did. And so we just basically got the tech gurus and I think it's Cisco and and we put in a backbone or a spine through the middle of the building. So this ensured that we could we could update that at any time and it was run by the experts installed by the the so called experts and that just meant that people could connect into it, had no problems at all. there nobody and then you go to another country, it's called a third world country, and The provider comes in and runs a cable all the way up the building, and people tap into it. Well, hold a minute. The consultant comes in and puts a cable all the way up to the penthouse for the person, then all up sub penthouse, so they all have individual cables. But then someone comes in and short circuits it by stealing someone's cable, if you know what I mean. And so your internet internet (laughs) drops off. You don't know why. So yeah, you get an expert in, you get a backbone put in, and the backbone can be updated like that. So. It's like running high-speed fiber through the streets or wherever you run it you just got to treat a building like a mini city so it can provide above and beyond what people need but that's an investment right that's a upfront investment mm-hmm. that the client chose to provide i think it's essential
0: yeah yeah is it is it now almost a standard that it just some of those things have to be part of part of design?
1: I think so. And then you can flip that question on its head, how does technology impact design? Well, technology has gone so far that it gives us the ability to, to look at buildings before they've been built. That gives us the ability to fly around buildings before they've been built. We can put clients into 3D software. We can put them into Oculus goggles and we can walk them through the space and, and expose them to the view.
0: Yes. I was wondering about that. How has that changed, changed the design process? Because I mean, can you feel a space now before you even build it like i know you can visualize it on paper and you do renderings but to be able to throw a Hololens lens on and walk around a room does that change the design
1: it changes the process yes it does indeed i work for a company where the guru of the company wanted to push us the whole time it was amazing experience but it was always about getting into models as quickly as you can some companies they work in you know plan section and elevation some companies work in plan section elevation and physical models one to 100 one to 50 one to 20 our guru pushed us as quick as possible to get to one to one because that's when you can make decisions right now that's from a design perspective and that's getting someone to physically make a model at one to one now if the building's 127 stories high, how do you do that? You start breaking it down into different sectors, right? Let's take so you might, you know, design the bathrooms as a pod that you can repeat on every floor, so let's concentrate on that, or you might design the entrance for each floor in a particular way What 3D software gives you is the ability to leap ahead of that to make a series of decisions, informed decisions along the design continuum, and then maybe at some point you pull out and make a physical model, and then you go further and make a further exploration in 3D. And you can even bring the client in on it, right? You can bring the client in and you can say to them, look, it it can be here, here, here. The windows can be here or here. And we can stretch them and make them bigger and shorter and change the view. And you can have the right view for the right elevation there. So when I first started out working in New York, we were doing this 21-story high-rise condo. And when we initially kicked off the project, we wanted to have a series of elevate real true elevational views from each floor. So we engaged a company that came down onto site and they used balloons. I'm not sure what they were filled with, but I'm gonna say they were full of helium, but they weren't the typical happy birthday balloons. They were slight, you know, larger, yeah. controllable balloons. This was pre-drones, right? So they yeah, so they yeah. <laughs> went to every corner of the site that we picked. And then they went up to the first floor and took a series of 360-degree views, and they went up to second, third, fourth, fifth, so on. So then we could get the client in and we could say to the client, this is the view you're gonna have on the 19th floor looking north. This is the view. And by the time that project had finished, drones had come out, and the person that we engaged to do the balloon photos, you know, would then maybe once a year contact me, Jay, hey, how you going? I'm just sort of doing a bit of preemptive as the work coming up because then they moved into drones. You know, you've got software now and SketchUp that can place you in the right site, that can track the sun that moves across the sky, that can map those elevational views to the, to the view through the window. It's amazing. It's amazing what you can do. So someone in New York that's looking to buy the condo off the plans that hasn't been built, you can guarantee them that that's the view from their condo. And for instance, I might want a condo on the seventh floor, but I might really hate the view of something that's just outside the window. So I want to know that I don't, I can't see that. I don't know what it's called. I can't see that particular donut shop because it really annoys me. So now I'm going to go up a couple more floors. So, so you're tailoring to the client. You're tailoring to the people who are going to buy it. It's not smoke and mirrors now. It's all real, right?
0: Yeah, and at the same time, when you're doing models you're not using as much material building physical models for somebody to walk through check feel approve you're actually building massive 3d models that can be one-to-one if they actually want to experience it that way so there's a whole other side of design because i know the modeling there's a lot of material actually goes into models in that whole process
1: yeah yeah quite often though i think what you're trying to do is i find through the design process a lot of people You might have a conversation with someone and be talking about the design of the house. You're talking about the overall design. We're trying to get to the notion or the key idea of the concept of the house. And obviously, we're going to go, oh, yeah, but I want it to be red. I want this tile to be this kind of feel or texture. And what we try to do is is take a lot of the materiality out of it and take a lot of the color out of the process because it's about space. And one of the easiest ways to describe it is it's like wayfinding, right? When you go to an airport, you want the journey through a space. Let's call it an airport. You want it to be intuitive. You want to know that once I've gone through security, I kind of feel like I'm moving in the right direction to depart. And you don't want to rely on signage to do this solely because that's not intuitive, right? Other than looking up as you're walking along, making sure you see the signs. You just want it to be an intuitive process of the way that you move through space. So, if it becomes intuitive, then you've started to create cool design or simple design. The minute you need to put color on something and say, Oh, you've got to aim for that red wall, it changes things. So, if you can make design decisions devoid of materiality and devoid of color and make spaces simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler, then we can go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation about it being easy for people to understand their journey and they they have these very uplifting emotional experiences the minute you flip it on its head
0: well and you hit simplicity right on the head because i think that's part of the secret to i guess the sustainability puzzle that people are trying to solve because there is so much to it you have a cost of everything you have a cost when you decide to build a building you have the cost of water energy materials transportation labor all the things and so you have costs that go into it But the simplicity that you mentioned, I find that intriguing because simplicity in design, simplicity in how we actually experience a space and simplicity in what we kind of need, I think has been skewed over over the years to where I think people are starting to trend a little bit back to, okay, what's the simple thing that I need? As a designer, how do you design for a trend that hasn't happened yet? is basically my question in that. So, with society kind of going different ways, when you have to kind of build something for the future and design for how people will experience a space, and if they're designing more simplicity, less signs, something like that, how do you design for that? And then like educate someone on a space to go that way. Is it testing? Is it you've done it for 10 years? Or is there really like a is it data? There
1: is, there is a lot of, you know, when you get to large-scale public projects, even just large-scale buildings, there is data analysis you can do. The times that people spend to go through a security turnstile, the amount of people that are coming to the buildings, the time it takes for people to go through security, the time it takes for them to stand and wait for elevators, the elevating system. So there's a lot of data there because what you want to do is you want to pull in all the leading experts in their field to contribute to the design process because you don't want to design what you think is an A-grade office building and quite typically the top floors are for the owners of the building and have them standing around at the bottom of the building going, well, why is it taking me 10 minutes to get to the top? So there's a lot of data and analysis you can do to figure out, you know, how big your core needs to be, how many elevators you need, how many X, Y, and Zs you need in order to be able to provide let's call it A-grade level of service.
0: Mm, yeah, because I, I believe the simplicity is almost in the the seamless. Yeah. It's the user doesn't even notice that they're going through a building, that they're experiencing a product. You just want the experience to be seamless. And I always found that simplicity in design allows that to happen. How does someone flow through for example even an airport what are some ways the flow of a building really makes a huge difference and like what are some of like the bottlenecks because i've always been intrigued by that of specifically if you're going to have a space where people are going to be hanging out for a long period of time in an airport's case maybe security what does that security space now look like is it just screens and ads everywhere or is it actually like can you have a natural space around you and something to kind of as you mentioned before, relax them through the process? You know, are there ways to kind of do that? Yeah,
1: there are. And it's very interesting because the psychology of travel, right? The psychology, the different user experiences, the different user groups that use the space or traveling through the space and the anxiety that people experience. while well, as they get out of their transportation, start arriving towards security. And some of the mechanisms we've used is providing you know, you've got a whole, an umbrella of security. You've got to remember that at the end of the day, you can't, let's say, um, compromise that umbrella of security, but you can provide people with perhaps simple design mechanisms, of view shafts. So just before you enter that security line, you know that you're coming down a tunnel, you're being funneled towards the security area. But when you're there waiting in line for security, one of the ways to alleviate some of the stress and anxiety is to make sure that you can give people A view out so they know where they're going after this so they know that they can go towards the light the big window and when you go towards the big window that means you can now see the airfield so you can see the mechanism the transportation mechanism you can see the plane it might not be your plane but once you can see the planes you can then understand, oh, here's the runway or oh, here are the gates. Maybe they're laid out to my left and the, and the right. So you're now a little bit confused about which way you should turn left or right. And that's where signage might come into it. You know, gates one to 10 are left and 10 to 20 are to the right. But it's that, it's that portal beyond security. And if you can make that more interesting, more shiny, more disco ball-y perhaps than the actual process of security, you actually forget about security because it's just sort of natural that you take off or or shed these implements and then you pick them up again. So I think it's, again, it's about scale and space. You know, when when you think about it, you come into a secure zone, people probably want to lower the ceiling heights and compress the walls because they want you to travel in a particular direction. And then when you pop out, you want to open it up and make it more cathedral-like so you feel like you've, you've survived the process and you're now feeling uplifted and the windows are now floor to ceiling and the ceiling's soaring up. So now you're feeling like, oh, I'm relaxed. I know there are planes here, and now I'm ready to fly or leave or arrive.
0: I like that. What's your dream building to build hmm. that you either haven't built yet, or maybe you already have? <laughs> what's what's kind of the dream building?
1: I think you know, all architects or all designers probably dream of designing a house
0: or a series
1: of houses or a series of spaces. Or so I, I, I would think that. It's not so much my dream, but I I would like to try and satisfy the requirements of living, but in a very simple and minimalist way, while still providing all of those creature comforts. I always Mm. sort of try to talk about exploding the notion of how we live in a house. So you pull it apart. But when you start to pull it apart, you come up with these problems of, well, what if I get out of the bed in the middle of the night and I need to find the bathroom? I don't want to have to go outside. But at the same time, all of these interactions are kind of can be quite separate. And just trying to simplify it down. What do we really need? We need shelter. As at the simplest form, you know, we need a roof over our heads to stop the rain from hitting us or the cold, or we need warmth, so we might need a fireplace. It's almost trying to regressively design in a way, or eliminate all of the distraction of design, or eliminate a lot of the the details, you know, the erroneous details or the decoration. So simplify everything down to the the simplest, purest form. Now, that is probably one of the hardest things to do. If you think of all of the amazing things in life, all the most amazing pieces of design that we ever experienced and some of the spaces that you hit on that are simple, they're simple for a reason because they're, they're not complicated, they're uncomplicated, they're uncluttered. But that takes a humongous amount of effort to make something so simplistic and beautiful and pure.
0: Mm-hmm. You hit on something so important and something I care very deeply about. It is just that the thoughtfulness of design and the simplicity and the beauty in those designs. Like to me, that you can see the thought that goes into something simple if you know what you're looking for or how to look for it. But it's that, I mean, for some people, it's that experience of an Apple device or it could be a beautifully designed old Jaguar. Mm, It could mm. be, you know, a beautiful Frank Lloyd Wright building. I mean, there's different ways that industrial design, a chair, it could talk to somebody in a different way and it could be seemingly simple, but it's so complex in the idea and how they communicated it that that's what makes it beautiful. And I, I love that you hit that because I think that part of our shelter and where we spend a lot of our space, I think we spent, we spent so much of our time in the last few years inside, in spaces. And how did those spaces make people feel? And I think that's where that opportunity for bringing nature back in and looking at our design and our spaces differently and simplifying is like, what are the simple things that we need to actually be happy? For a lot of people, when they got back outside, they were happy. So, how do you just bring that back inside?
1: Yeah and going back to you know what would be my favorite space to design I've mm-hmm. got a friend that's got a lovely piece of property and one of the issues about New Zealand is you meet lots of people who have amazing properties with amazing views of the coast you know we have crazy long coastline for the population and so people are able to buy these slices of paradise that look out with these amazing views And through the process of walking around this property of my friend, and I'm drawing a circle on the ground, it's a cyclic process. We walk around the property, we discuss potential house sites, and we come back to the same place every time because of a series of simple answers that my friend has. But the next step I wanted to do was, because we go down there, we camp quite a lot. The next step is I wanted to take him down there and I wanted to give him a bundle of sticks, just sort of heading towards dusk and say, okay, let's, let's go and build a fire where you think you want to put your house, because we know we want to have a fire in your house, and let's go and experience what that is, and, you know, and then, then the next step might be, well, now let's just put a little bit of a shelter up, let's call it a tent fly, and sleep there, and really experience it, to make sure that this is where you want it to be. You know, so I was trying to take the notion of simplifying life a little bit rather than us you know, turn up with our car and unpack the barbecue and X, Y, and Z. Why don't we just walk there tonight, have a little fire, what do we need for the fire, a few rocks and and a faggot of sticks and a lighter and a log to lean against. And then let's talk about the notion of your house. I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting process. It's, I'm trying to simplify it.
0: Wow. That is a really, really cool way to think about it. That's I've never heard that approach before. That's fantastic. And then
1: there's the other one, right? You know, And this is uh, definitely something I've picked up along my career is quite often people will come to you and they'll be like, oh, so I've got these house plans or, or, or this is what I want my house to be like. Okay, cool. Draw a love heart where you think the center of your house is. And it's really interesting how people draw that love heart in different places. But I think with modern times and the way particularly I like to live it, it's centered, my life and entertaining is centered around food. So it's centered around the kitchen and the extension of the kitchen. And I don't particularly like people coming over and then me just whipping out a meal and going, ta-da, this is what I prepared earlier. I like yes. to have people come in and welcome them in. And you know, It's always when you welcome people in, would you like something to drink? Would you like something to eat? And so that's how humans are. And, and, and if, if in a simple form, if you invited people over and you had nothing, you might have a fire. And so that's where it all start now the fire could be your stove or it could actually be a fire
0: mm. last few questions but one of the one of the questions i'm really curious about is do you believe that design is led by watching humans experience something so for example when you come inside you say would you like to eat or drink and this is where i spend my time that the kitchen is the center of the home do you feel that that is consumer decision or is it a design decision that says well 40% of people said that they they like the living room is the center part and 60% said the kitchen well we're going to design all apartments now to have bigger kitchens and then does that slowly change the mindset of the consumer or is there always an equilibrium that's always found just with design
1: well I think it's probably an equilibrium but I, I think and just from observing humans continually observing people it's like when you go to a party right you go to a party and where where do people end up at the party they normally end up you know around the fridge and the kitchen all that kind of stuff but you could herd them away and say that's enough people out of the kitchen let's go hang out in the dining room or in the lounge and put music on i think what people do collectively is you store up Ideas or you store up experiences of the way of when you move through space and when you move through space it's basically moving through your life right and you store up these experiences and, and you have you've recounted a few iconic experiences talked about a jaguar, talked about Frank Lloyd Wright you know so you store up some cool experiences and and you carry a mental scrapbook around with you in your head subconsciously you've parked all of these things. oh wow, I really liked that space and I can't figure out why. And I'm going to tell you it's because it was the simplistic form of it and the the scale of it. That's why. And it felt nice and it's integration with nature. So you give it a little tick and say, that's what I want. I'm going to steal all the good bits, all the good emotional, good experiences. And if you could bottle that all up and then perhaps use that to write a brief to then pass on to a designer or an architect, you'd be so much further ahead in the design process. Than if you weren't able to put your finger on different spatial experiences. So, I always find going into different types of galleries quite uplifting. What's cool about galleries is that they are they're flexible spaces. So, sometimes you might go into an art gallery and it feels open and vast, and other times you'll go into it and it'll be really tiny and intimate. So, you know, it's the way that the space is set up is what I find really interesting. And that's the experience that I park and go, oh, that's what I'd like to be able to recreate for people. But I also think that each person, each individual experiences something different each time. But it's managing to try and get people on the same wavelength or continuum while you're putting together the design of a building or anything. And it's not necessarily like-minded people, you know, sometimes the most diverse groups can come up with the most interesting things. So you want to surround yourself with interesting people that have a common cause, but getting back to the question of, you know, do I think that design or do I think that consumers are changing and pushing the notion of design? I think, I think it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. It's the designer opening people up to perhaps seeing in a different way, and then it's perhaps the consumer being able to communicate to the designer in a particular way. And that brings you around to different cultures that are more design-savvy than other cultures. People in Europe that have grown up around plazas, for instance, or piazzas, if you want to call them that, they get that whole idea of community. They get that whole idea of living on top of, of a commercial Space on top of a restaurant. And when you go to these places, South America or, or in Europe, they have an amazing vibe to them. And a lot of them are very tourist centric. But if you get off the of tourist centrics, these smaller piazzas or plazas, they're amazing the way they work. And they kind of almost self police themselves through design, too, don't they? They're either open really late, or if there's something going on, they're all closed down. There's someone always upstairs going, Oi, what are you doing down there? <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a hundred percent. It's a it's a balance between the two. Yeah. So where where do you think design right now can educate the consumer on kind of what the future of architecture can look like? If if we're from the design process or on the commercial side, thoughts are to be more circular or to be more thoughtful in design or to utilize the space even more, bring nature in, whatever that narrative is, what do you think the best ways architects or designers can integrate that? To consumers nowadays,
1: well, I'm going to use an example of I think it was, I might be wrong, but I think it was Shop Architects in New York that opened up sort of a very small slither of a sidewalk walk of a building with panels for another company that has just recently opened up an office on in Venice Beach, and they leave their doors open. For instance, what I always find fascinating is architects kind of tend to. Squirrel themselves away, or you've got architects who who do a couple of things. They they don't necessarily demonstrate or live what they do. And I'll go all the way back to the beginning of when I first started having graduated with an architect's degree, and I got a job working for a practice, and they just inhabited a house and that and then turned it into an office. And it's another sort of bugbear, I guess. You buy a house and you think, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna change X, Y, and Z of this house. It was built in the 1930s and we're now two thousand and twenty-three, right? So <laughs> if you have all these grand ideas when you move into a house that you've bought, this is my theory that if you don't change it quickly, it changes you. So you basically end up accommodating yourself within the bounds of a nineteen fifties or a nineteen ten. House and living within it. Whereas, you know, we want to live in a modern way, and those old houses were small and pokey, and they probably had a small kitchen where unfortunately the the servant or the woman was expected to cook and then miraculously provide a feast for 10 or 20 people in another dining hall. And so, Mm -hmm. I suppose where, where I'm going with that is that I think, and touching back on the idea of cultures in the world that are incredibly design savvy, and then there are cultures in the world that aren't design savvy there's a big difference between them I think architects and designers need to be able a little bit like the description about buildings opening up to nature is you need to have more engagement with architects architects need to be able to do more I suppose you know there's I always had the problem where we were architects for what I'd call the top three percent of people in the world but we want to try and bring ourselves down to being able to be architects for everybody and There's financial constraints, X, Y, and Z. But the more educated you can make, the common person about design and the reason behind the design and the reason behind the decisions, the more they will request better design of spaces and places. Rather than being dictated on in that direction, we want everybody to open up and ask for more. So it's education, right? Yeah, And it's always sort of, you know, you come across people like, oh, you've got an architecture degree or you're an architect, you must be rich. It's, it's, not, about, <laughs> it's not about the money. And the, certainly architects don't make a lot of money unless they are the top five architects in the world. But it's kind of like, it's not an elitist thing. And mm-hmm. sometimes I feel through conversations with people that maybe people think it is an elitist thing. But I think there is a huge difference between architecture and building. And there are a lot more Mm -hmm. buildings in the world than there is architecture, unfortunately. And you get drawn into conversations with people about, "Well, what do you think of this, this, and this, and this?" Well, that's quite obviously a building Mm -hmm. built, perhaps by a builder or built by a developer, without the input of the design fraternity. And so that's Mm -hmm. the sad thing: is there's, there's the education of what architecture is, and then there's the education of the people so they can ask more of. Buildings or ask for architecture.
0: Well, and to me, the easiest way to do that is showing people architecture. Yes. I mean, to me, to see a beautiful building, that's enough for me to look up architecture. And so, how important is it for cities to have iconic buildings that are beautifully designed, that inspire people to ask questions of architects?
1: I think it is important. And I cite my time of living in the UK and living in London in particular. And the joy of walking around London and coming across buildings that were so old, they were amazing. And why were they still standing? Respect to history. Amazing old buildings. And then turning the corner and seeing some, at the time, high-tech architecture. Let's call it Richard Rogers Lloyd's Building. I can't remember the name for it. But all coming across the Shard nowadays or coming across, I don't know, the Gherkin by Fostering Partners. I think it is important. I think it's important that we have buildings that are place-marking and are place-making. And we did cite in our previous conversation the Guggenheim effect, you know, Bilbao, Guggenheim effect, what it did for Bilbao, what it did for Spain, what it did for people, and when you're there walking around the outside of the building and let's say that the general public of that area have been there and been through it they still utilize the space the plaza the space between the building and the river and the relationship between the old buildings and the new building so again very iconic you know and you can virtually draw uh, you know one line drawing of the Guggenheim building but uh back to the conversation we had where we said, you know, there's a Sydney Opera House. You can say what that you can say where that building is because it's iconic. And you can say Bill Bow's iconic and you can say X, Y, and Z is iconic, and it cements people's understanding or puts that place on the map. And I look at where I'm am right now in New Zealand and in Auckland right now, New Zealand's largest city, something like one point five million people. We have a building that's the way in the middle of the city there and it's called a sky tower I don't know it's 150 meters tall but it looks like Seattle's space needle or something like that without being rude to the designers it's kind of been done before so it's not really iconic because if you put a whole mm-hmm. lot of space needles together you wouldn't be able to say what city it is whereas if you put an image of the Sydney Opera House on a piece of paper and said what city is that someone might say I think that's Sydney mm-hmm. you
0: know and, yeah.
1: and why is it Sydney because is it Jorn Utzen designed a crazy cool building in the 60s that the client loved and and Australia were able to maintain, and it's now become a national symbol.
0: What's your favorite building? (laughs) That's
1: a tricky one. I I have lots of favorite buildings, but I I do very much like uh, Mies van der Rohe's Farnsworth House in Chicago. That was probably one of my pilgrimages, as was Falling Water. But I feel like the Farnsworth House is a very simplistic design. It's very connected to nature and it probably has lots of issues in terms of passive design. You know, it got too hot and it got flooded and all that. But I think you could overcome those kind of issues now with modern technology and perhaps with the addition of slightly different systems to keep the sun out. But just in terms... Of the space, the Farnsworth House, and then Mies van der Rohe's Barcelona Pavilion, which I experienced in Barcelona. Wow. Yeah, so that's in, awesome. Very simple, beautiful. I mean, they're rectilinear kind of style buildings, they're not amorphic or anything like that. But Mies mm. is cool, but then some of the stuff that's done by Zaha Hadid is beautiful. And then you've got, so it's all over the place because you've also got Frank Gehry's stuff. So it's, you, you can't put your finger on one particular thing, but there's lots of elements to do with lots of simple buildings. That someone's worked or teams of people working very hard at to make simple that are beautiful. What about you? What's your favorite building?
0: Oh man, that is a wonderful question. You know, it's interesting. One of the one of the first buildings that I do remember for some reason I was I was a young kid and I, I grew up in Santa Cruz, but in the Bay Area, basically, and I went to a train station in downtown San Jose and been there for a long time. And I remember seeing the ceiling of the train station and just this beautiful artwork i mean the ceiling above you where most people don't look in buildings is directly up yep and to me i just remember being just stunned by a ceiling and thinking about how much work and how much time went into that and so that was kind of the beginning of really being interested in buildings lately i've been i want to go see the falling water house because i've I've started to explore more of that that home space and what really fascinates me is non. Just everything. If you have a curved wall and a curved kitchen, something that isn't exactly a box. Yeah, I think is very interesting. Walls that are not just straight, very intriguing right now. Yeah. So yeah. those are some of the buildings I'm finding interesting. But I I can't put a finger on like right now what my favorite building is. But anything honestly, I've been. If you go down. On Zillow and look at Big Sur homes, you'll be inspired by some of the designs of those homes. I mean, they're just absolutely stunning. When you can build stuff into a cliff overlooking the ocean and just the way that they thoughtfully designed some of those spaces, it's incredible.
1: I tell you, when you started describing some of those spaces that you liked, particularly that are not rectilinear, Daniel Liebeskin's building in Berlin, I'm going to say it's the Jewish Museum. That's a pretty interesting space to walk through. Particularly, you know, if I set it against something like Mies van der Rohe and then I go to that that side of it. Very interesting. Very interesting way. Not only are the walls not rectilinear, but sometimes they're leaning, sometimes they're opening up, sometimes they're going like this. If you can get to Berlin and experience that, that would be a pretty cool space to check out.
0: Wow. It's on the list then, for sure. <laughs> and where's, where's your favorite place to enjoy nature in the whole world?
1: Uh, in the whole world... Well, I really like, it's crazy because I like New Zealand because have got all these rolling farm hills, but that's created by man. So anywhere there's nature, and particularly on the coast in Mexico where the jungle comes down to the sea, it's not something mm. that I experience a lot here in New Zealand because I love the sea and I love the connection between the coast and the sea. In New Zealand, for instance, you tend to have more of a flat aspect where you can come down along the grass bank onto the sand and then into the water, or maybe there's a cliff. But we don't tend, and sometimes we have the bush that comes down as well, but there's something about what's in the bush in Mexico and the variety of flora and fauna and animals and insects that then come down to the sea. And being right on that edge, we'll call it the cusp, between nature Mm. and water and the tenuous relationship that. Homo sapiens have to clinging on to the edge, and you've described it there, onto the cliffs of Big Sur, the tenuous relationship we have there, and with the recent storms we've had in New Zealand, for instance, it's the, how do you live on that fine line without polluting the water? It's crazy, right? Certainly in in the areas of Mexico, people just sort of feel like they've, they've gone south off the road, walked along the coast, and built a house, and done what they've done needed to do and it's all potentially not permitted and not legal but they've been living there for years and then i come here and we've had problems with the storms because when we all live on slight slopes that all go down to the sea and anything that overflows ends up in the water what are we doing to this world man <laughs> <laughs> anywhere outside my favorite space
0: that's incredible yeah. Outside's the best. Yeah, and sure. and that's the other... New Zealand has always been on my bucket list to go to. I remember growing up. So, I, I grew up my grandfather and my dad both raced sailboats and they did for a long time. So, my grandfather did a lot of crazy long sailboat races and stuff like that. And so, I grew up watching the America's Cup and I remember being a young kid and watching New Zealand and the US racing in America's Cup. And I just remember the New Zealand boat was the coolest, and I was like, "Man, those people are so cool!" And I was like, "That place looks so cool. It just seems like a truly unique place to grow up, to live, to be, and and truly like it's a cool place in the world that I don't think a lot of people have experienced."
1: Steve, sorry to burst your bubble. Saturday, I went for a sail.
0: <laughs> oh
1: no! <laughs> and then and then this morning, I read the paper, and Team New Zealand were out on the harbor. In which you can basically see at the bottom of my street, so they're out on the harbor racing this weekend, and they've got i can't remember the the acronym I'm going to call it AZ something, yeah but they had two boats, so they had their race boat, and then they've got their up and coming design boat they had them both out on the harbor, both competing against each other, and they hit fifty knots, and the support boat couldn't keep up
0: it's incredible. You know, it's incredible. It's
1: foiling. And so I go out my door and I turn and I walk three houses. So less than 110 steps and I'm on the beach. And on a nice day, this beach is 1.2 kilometers long. And on a nice day, and I'm talking nice from a sailing perspective, there will be somewhere between 25 and 100 people out there foiling on. So they've got those new sort of things that look like a butterfly that they just hold on to. Yep. And they're yep, all the foiling. And some of them are out there on battery foil boards. So they don't have a sale at all. It's it's mm-hmm. amazing, dude. So keep up that dream of coming down to New Zealand and come and experience some of that.
0: <laughs> God, just a playground. Playground. It's wild, eh? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jay, thanks for taking the time. i just stoked to have you on the podcast to talk everything about architecture and design. Because I think it's it's one of those areas I've always been fascinated with. I'm nowhere close to being the expert in it. So it's really great to bring somebody like you on. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Goat Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Castenham. With each episode, we can further define what it means to create a truly sustainable and resilient future. I think the new status is to show that, that you actually care. You want to drive change and you want to be part of a sustainable future. People fight for what they love.
1: Let's uh, really all target for a small but significant shift in the way we live, we consume, and we plan our life.
0: Join us at sustainablegoat.com.